morning, everyone. It's great to see everybody who's here this morning. Like Jason said, it is um, more, more brethren are here than, than anticipated, which is uh, a great joy. Um, and this morning we're going to be looking at Acts uh, chapter 2, uh, 22 through 41. This is probably the closest I've ever come to having a sermon related to a holiday at a time of an assembly. Usually I, I try to avoid giving lessons that are just related to the, you know, days and holidays, but, um, you know, the, a couple days ago was a day that many often associate with remembering uh, Jesus, and this is going to be a lesson focused on, on Jesus, and a lesson focused on a sermon Peter preached, where he was bringing attention to Jesus' purpose for living, and what we find in Scripture, more important than why Jesus was only born is why he came into the world to die and to raise from the dead and to establish an eternal kingdom. Uh, If you haven't been here, the title for this um, series is The Beginning of the End, which may sound a little strange, but it comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 17, where Joel prophesied about something that was going to come within the last days. Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 Jesus had instructed the apostles to go to Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father, that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent to them in Jerusalem. So in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, this promise is fulfilled. And there are signs that accompany the fact that the Spirit has now been poured out that marks this final period of time where God would set up his Messiah as king and pour his spirit on those who call on his name to be saved. So the title of this lesson is Salvation. We're going to see through this, this section, the climax of everything that has been happening is salvation. Joel's prophecy has many amazing images, and that's in verses 17 through 21. And those amazing images are really just simply to convey the fact that in these last days, this final period of time when God would pour his spirit out, really these images in verse 17 through 21 are simply to convey that salvation was going to reach its final climax, and at the same time, judgment was also going to be reaching its final climax. And what this is going to do in verse 21 is this is going to urge all people to seek the Lord and to call on his name while seeing their need to be saved. So in verse 21, this really sets up the rest of Peter's sermon. It's really actually an outline. So Peter quotes Joel. He quotes Joel chapter 2, where the final part of the quote is, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From verses 22 through 36, which is the rest of the sermon, Peter defines who is the Lord that you need to call on, and why do you need to call on his name to be saved. And then in verse 37 through 41, particularly verse 38, Peter is going to define how do you call on the name of the Lord. So Peter's sermon, the rest of the sermon, is in verse 21, who is the Lord that you need to call on? And then when the people ask what to do, then Peter defines for them, well, here's how you call on the name of this Lord to be saved. So verse 21 is an outline of both Peter's sermon and his response to the people. So we're going to start just rereading verses 22 through 36, 
And we're going to see how Peter defines this Lord, Jesus, who is now exalted. Verse 22 through 36, if you want to read with me. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And by the way, Lucy, I'm sorry, it's Acts chapter 2 that we're in. I don't know if I mentioned that clearly. Acts chapter 2, we're reading verse 22 through 36. Um, Verse 24, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I think the first important thing to note with this sermon is that Peter's preaching is filled with sober logic and solid evidence. Peter's not asking them to just put blind faith within his words. He is rooted within truth and evidence, right? If we even look back at verse 22 in the very beginning of when Peter begins talking specifically about Jesus, Jesus is from a real place. He came from Nazareth, and they know that. The people knew about Jesus' ministry and the signs and the wonders and the miracles that God performed through him. And this was all done in their midst, and they know this. And then in verse 29, after quoting a passage about David, he mentions that they have David's tomb in their presence to this day. So it couldn't have been David talking about himself. And then he mentions in verse 32 that they are a direct witness of Jesus after his resurrection. In verse 33, he references the fact that they've been a witness to the sign of the Holy Spirit just earlier in the chapter, the languages that were being spoken by the apostles that they hadn't learned. And so everything is based in logic and evidence, right? He's proving his points to maximize the conviction in the audience by the time he's concluded. In verse 22 through 36... We talked last week about Joel's prophecy specifically about this final period of time that would be demonstrated by the pouring out of the Spirit that really leads to an opportunity to teach more clearly again about the Lord being established as ruler of God's kingdom. 
The way that Peter proves that Jesus is the exalted Lord and Messiah is with three prophecies that all relate to David. One is Psalm 16, verses uh, 8 through 11, and that's quoted in verse 25 through 28. So if you would, uh, and we're not going to turn back there, but if, if you want to take a note of that, that's Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 that Peter is quoting from. And then he quotes from 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. That's quoted in verse 30, where he says, And knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. That comes from 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. I'll put that scripture on the board in just a moment. And then he also quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. To my knowledge, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the entire Old Testament. You remember Jesus when he was talking with the Pharisees and scribes? He quotes the same passage. And he says, the Messiah is he, David's son. And then he quotes that passage and says, well, if the Messiah is supposed to be David's son, how is it he also in this passage calls him Lord? And the people really couldn't respond to that because it's very difficult to understand, right? We'll we'll talk more about that in in a moment. But we're going to go quotation by quotation and just try to put together what is Peter proving with these Old Testament passages about Jesus? Well, for one, in verses 25 through 28, the Christ would die. So in verse 27, notice he says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In verse 29, he makes the point that David was buried and decayed. So this could not have been David talking about himself. He must have been talking about someone else who would descend from him, someone whose body would go into the ground, they would suffer death, but they would be resurrected from the dead. Therefore, their body would not suffer decay in the ground. So Peter's making the point that David was implying in this prophecy that the Christ would die and yet he would also be resurrected. And this is what, in verse 27, gave David himself great hope, that he looked ahead and saw that God was not going to allow his Messiah to die and remain dead, but rather he would be resurrected from the dead. Verse 30 through 31, this Messiah who would die, who would be buried, and who would be resurrected, this would be the same one who would also inherit the throne of God's kingdom forever. And this scripture I'll put on the board in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. This is a very important Old Testament prophecy that uh, was spoken to David, King David. What God told to David is, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David's son Solomon, in a sense, built a house for God's name. He built a temple uh, for God and for the nation. But really, if you press the language of this prophecy, this could not have been Solomon that was the fulfillment of this prophecy because Solomon's throne was not established forever. And so the point Peter is making is that God had foreseen through David that there would be an heir to the throne of God and this heir from David would have an eternal kingdom that would never be conquered but only would conquer forever. And so again, this one that was promised would be 
uh, would die, be buried, be resurrected. He would inherit the throne of God's kingdom forever. But then in verse 34 and 35, when he quotes Psalm 110, a significant difference in the nature of this throne is it would not be in Jerusalem, in an earthly place. This was going to be a throne that would be directly at God's right hand in heaven. So this one would not just be resurrected. He wasn't just going to inherit the physical throne of Jerusalem. He was going to need to ascend into heaven itself to sit directly at God's right hand. Another interesting thing about this prophecy, this this is related to the question Jesus raises in the Gospels. How is the Messiah David's son if David also calls him Lord even while still living? The idea that Jesus was trying to confront them with is that this Christ would not just be a descendant of David. He would be. But it implies this final point here. God would become man. God would become man. He would suffer death, but be resurrected. And then he would ascend to heaven to God's right hand. And from there, in verse 35 of this sermon, from heaven, this Messiah, who is both God and man, who is raised from the dead, would subject all mankind to the rule of God. And so Peter raises the evidence that surrounds Jesus. That in verse 36, this proves, not just by what they know by physical evidence, that they know of Jesus and his time going around in Jerusalem and the Judean area and his ministry. It's not just that they're aware of his crucifixion and even participated in it. It's that the scriptures give the conclusive evidence that now that Jesus is gone from their midst, he is ruling in heaven forever. So in verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The idea of him being Lord, he is the highest authority, the master of all to which all will be held accountable to. He is the one to whom all owe their allegiance and he is the greatest power in existence. And he is the Christ The idea of Jesus being the Christ, he is the the singular fulfillment of God's plan and of all prophecy. God's entire plan rests on Jesus' shoulders. And he uniquely is the one mediator that exists between God and man. As Jesus said in John 14 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. That's the idea of Messiah, the singular way that mediates between man and God. So this finale of the sermon is interesting. Usually in teaching a sermon, the habit is, you know, you always end the sermon with an invitation, right? So you don't want to end without saying, okay, so if if you're convicted and there's something that you'd want to do, you know, we want to extend that invitation. Something fascinating about this sermon, there is no invitation, It concludes with only the most convicting facts being affirmed about the situation. Just imagine you're in this audience. It's been 50 days since the death of Jesus. And you imagine after the riotous craze surrounding Jesus quiets down, everyone kind of tries to go back to their ordinary lives. You begin hearing rumors that Jesus has risen from the dead. Maybe you were even a witness of Jesus. But like we talked about last week, the guilt 
of Jesus' death is not resolved. There's no law in the law of Moses that resolves the guilt of crucifying the Lord's Christ. There's nothing. So even though you're hearing all of these things about Jesus, it's like the problem of Jesus is still lingering. So imagine now, the signs of the Spirit being poured out have now come. Peter is preaching this lesson. And imagine you're hanging on every word, just anticipating the next thing to be said. And then finally, at this last statement, the most convicting facts are affirmed and there's silence. And imagine as you remember the madness of Jesus' crucifixion. And if Jesus has been raised by God, you look back at verse 23. This was God's predetermined plan, but where do these people stand in that plan? They're standing on the wrong side of this predetermined plan, right? And so you imagine you're left in a helpless condition. And that leads us to verse 37 through 41 where they ask the right question. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So at verse 37, how they responded, notice the first phrase that's mentioned about how this impacted them. Again, you imagine for 50 days, they've had time to reflect This has had time to settle in their conscience. They've had time to to be horrified at the rumor that Jesus is raised, but there's no resolution. It's as if their most vital organ had been punctured by this message. You know, this isn't them telling Peter, Peter, you really stepped on my toes today. No, this is as if their most vital organ was punctured. I don't know if any of you have ever had a vital organ punctured before. But I was in an accident when I was 16 where my right lung completely collapsed. And that was a problem I could not ignore. And the thing that was on my mind the most was, where am I in my relationship with God right now? And when I was, at, when I was 16 at that point, I was in the wrong place in my relationship with God, and I knew it. And the only thing that mattered to me in that moment, I started begging God to forgive me of the way that I was living. Nothing mattered more to me than my relationship with God when my lung was punctured. And this is the situation here. Their heart, it's as if somebody has cut them directly in the heart. Nothing matters more to them right now than where they're at in their relationship with God. And so what do you think about their question? What shall we do? Is that a fair question for them to ask? Many times what's taught around us very commonly is what do you mean, what do you need to do? You believe already and that's enough. That's not Peter's response. And let me ask you this, just based on the question and the impact, do you think they believed the message? Does it seem like they were persuaded by what they had heard? I think if I'm responding this way, I'm fairly persuaded and convicted by what I've heard. But they ask, what shall we do? 
helplessly putting their hands out, how do we call on this Lord? God's response through Peter's word is astonishing. And I think sometimes for me, it's helpful to take a step back and not just to look at what this proves about what to do, but what it's saying about God. God had just been offended in the most heinous way. His son, his Messiah, was ruthlessly murdered, publicly humiliated in the most degrading way. People who owed God everything took everything from him. God had been offended in a heightened way that does, it goes beyond any Old Testament event where God was angry. And yet, God's response to being offended in the most excruciating and painful way is to immediately offer a closer and more committed relationship with him than was ever possible before. A better relationship than David himself ever had with God? A better relationship than what Abraham ever had with God? A better relationship than any of the prophets ever had with God? God's response is to immediately offer this to the people. That's astonishing. Nobody is like that. And I think that's so humbling just to see that God so quickly offers them terms of perfect peace. Turning your Bibles to Isaiah 32, if you would, I want to focus first on how amazing these promises are that God is offering to the people. Isaiah 32 is a passage that also speaks about the nature of the time when God would pour forth his spirit. Isaiah chapter 32, verses 12 through 18. Just like Joel's prophecy, this Old Testament passage uses very vivid picturesque imagery, very tangible imagery to communicate an an intangible, spiritual, invisible truth. But these images still are conveying true spiritual realities that we're discussing. Isaiah 32, verses 12 through 18. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land in my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. So just pause there. The idea is a once fruitful place where God was to dwell with his people has been transformed by sin into a barren desolation. But now look at verse 15 until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places. Isn't that amazing? It's not just that there is guilt and conviction, because there is no restoration without the pains of conviction. But what God is offering is immediate terms of peace. God is offering restoration of what is barren and broken. 
God is offering to heal what's been broken by sin. And he's offering undisturbed security in a perfect covenantal relationship with him. And I think when he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, he's talking about how this promise is for all people. And what Peter does in verse 39, he finishes Joel's prophecy because Joel finishes that context talking about how God will call people from everywhere into his promises through the Lord. And so he says, this promise is for you and your children for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And here's an important role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in this gift, it identifies us with and gives us full access to God's promises in Jesus Christ. One passage that I think speaks to this point that is very comforting, reassuring, is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when he says, In him that is Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And so, This salvation that Peter is speaking of is not just forgiving you of your sins and then setting you on your way. It's identifying you with an eternal new relationship with God, being adopted into the family of God, entering into the kingdom of God, inheriting all of the great promises that God had always been anticipating to be able to pour out on his children. And there's nothing, there is nothing better than this promise. There's nothing more to be sought after. There's nothing more to receive. This is the climax of all existence, is this promise being offered. So Peter then tells them how to call on the name of the Lord. So Ephesians 1 says, after believing, well, how did they believe? How did Peter tell them to call on the name of the Lord? Verse 38 again, repent and each of you be baptized, notice this, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive this gift that we're discussing, the gift of the Holy Spirit. First thing he tells them is they need to repent. The idea of repentance is very simple. It's not just turning from certain behaviors, habits, or ways of thinking. It's not just turning away from habits of sin that I may be enslaved to currently that I feel guilty about. Repentance is turning from self and to the world. And it's turning to follow Jesus and his kingdom. It's dedicating myself in a committed relationship to Jesus as his disciple. And it's not that that's going to be perfectly performed, but covenants are initiated by mutual commitment. And what Peter is saying is, God is offering you his full commitment. He is willing to pour out the fullness of his love, every part of his covenant that he's ever wanted to give. He will give it to you in abundant measure. In return, just repent. Turn from the things that led to Jesus' death, that blind you to God's glory and grace, that diminish the value of God's promises through faith. It's like turning, it's like telling a child, to stop touching a hot oven or stove, only doing what's hurting you anyway. And so repentance, God is calling us, turn from the things that are not even good to have or pursue in the first place and seek Jesus in the kingdom. 
And then he tells them to be baptized, each one, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I think it's important to just, for a moment, pause on this. He doesn't tell them to be baptized as a sign of salvation having already come into their life. He doesn't say be baptized because you've already been forgiven. He doesn't say be baptized to demonstrate your commitment to Jesus. Why did they believe they were being baptized? What did they believe was happening when they were being baptized? They were told to be baptized specifically for the forgiveness of their sins. You see this also with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Paul confronted the Lord, or rather the Lord confronted Paul on the road to Damascus. He saw the Lord, he had a conversation with him, he believed in the Lord, he was praying, and yet it's not until he met Ananias, and Ananias gave him this instruction. He said, now why do you delay? Speaking to Saul at this point, who would become Paul, get up and be baptized and do what? Wash away your sins, calling on his name. It is precisely what Peter instructed also in chapter 2, verse 38. Paul had to do the same thing to receive the same promise, right? So baptism in scripture is for the forgiveness of sins. Peter didn't tell them. This would have been the perfect opportunity to say, what you need to do is say a sinner's prayer. You just need to call the Lord into your heart and you will be saved. That's not what Peter said. Peter said they needed to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And in verse 39 through 41, this began a mass evacuation from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. Um, that comes from Colossians, that language comes from Colossians 1, 13 and 14, where it says, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You remember last week when we were talking about the judgment language in Joel, related that to a volcanic eruption that happened in Nevado del Ruiz in Colombia in 1985. And they were told to evacuate fairly early before the volcano erupted because the signs of the eruption were very clear that it was indefinitely going to erupt. But they ignored the signs. 23,000 people died when that volcano erupted, when they had every opportunity to escape beforehand. The idea of verse 39 through 41, when it says in verse uh, 41, those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. By believing in God's word and acting on God's promises... God had transferred all of those 3,000 souls. He had transferred them out of the dangerous place they were in. All of them were now in peace with God, in safety and security with God. They were in God's kingdom. And now they could rejoice and devote themselves to God and devote themselves to one another in verse 42. One last point on, on this in verse 41. We talked about this recently. But God was adding himself, those who were being saved. They were being added into the universal church as they were believing in his word and being baptized. God himself was adding them into his body. One final point, just to review, and I hope make something a little more clear. The call of the gospel and the idea of repentance, it's the idea, I think, of surrendering. 
Repentance is a word or to repent, I think can be a little intangible, um, kind of hard to understand and define. It's not a word you really hear very commonly. But I think we understand the idea of surrendering much more vividly and see it more commonly. Do you want to turn to Acts 20, verse 21? This is something that I hope can be very clear with this context. The gospel is a message of surrendering to a person. It's a message of being reconciled with the person of God. It's not just a message of pursuing forgiveness, but pursuing reconciliation and submission to God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul is speaking in Acts 20 here, and it says he was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the idea. Paul is advocating surrendering to the Father through putting faith in his Son. So again, it's a message of surrendering to a person, not just becoming guilt-free and then moving on with my life. Right? And I'd like to define surrender maybe a little bit here and look at some definitions. Here's what we're talking about. And here's what I think is being advocated in Acts chapter 2 to the original audience that Peter was speaking to. That the gospel is a message that urges us to cease resistance to an enemy or opponent and submit ourselves to their authority. Romans chapter 5 teaches us that when we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us to reconcile us with God. And so we're being urged to, to see how we have been resisting God's authority as enemies, just as this audience was, and associating ourselves with their response so that we can submit to the authority of God. Another definition of authority is in agreement to stop fighting, stop hiding, stop resisting again, because you know that you will not win or succeed. We'll, we'll come back to that um, in the final scripture we'll look at. But again, this, this agreement, we're done fighting. The rest of my life is surrendered to the Lord. I'm no longer going to hide from God or resist his will because I know I will not win or succeed. That's a part of what made this message so convicting. If they're guilty of crucifying Jesus and God raised him up, there's no escaping accountability to that. Because if Jesus is ruling forever outside of reach in heaven, then that's it. What must I do to escape the situation? And the final definition I'll look at here is it's the act of giving something over to the possession or the control of someone else. And we'll look at here in Luke 14. If you want to turn your Bible here, and this will be the invitation in Luke 14. But I think this gives context to what Jesus taught about discipleship. What Jesus taught about discipleship. It's giving over possession and control to someone else. To be a disciple of Jesus is to give up and yield complete control. Not just control of my mouth, control of my thoughts. Not just control of my behavior, control of my heart. Not just control of my possessions, but control of my time. It's the act of of seeking to give everything over to the control of God. Look at Luke chapter 14, verses 31 through 33. Jesus is 
speaking from verse 25 about the cost of discipleship, and he speaks in this way in the middle in verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So first, verse 31 and 32. Repentance seems difficult and surrendering seems difficult when we just don't see it in its context. What Jesus is saying here is any reasonable king, if he understands that he is outmatched, what is he going to do? Even if he's begun mustering forces, as soon as he realizes in verse 31 that he's actually not strong enough to encounter his enemy, in verse 32, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He recognizes this is a battle he's going to lose. What must I do? Acts chapter 2, God gives his terms of peace. Luke 14, verse 33 Jesus gives terms of peace. The more clearly we understand that in sin we have not assigned the right value to our possessions, we have not assigned the right value to ourselves, to our loved ones, we recognize that whatever God says as terms of peace is fair and merciful. And so if God is asking me to yield control over my possessions, then God we praise, so be it. God's terms of peace are fair. And so in verse 33, saying it's not that you have too little, it's that you actually have too much. It's that we're blind to the riches of God's kindness, to his grace, to the promises of having a reconciled relationship with him, because we have made idols out of the things in the present. And so God is asking us to yield control and to surrender to his authority. And if that's what we're convicted to do, the message is so simple. It's to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, not as a sign of something that's already happened, but to receive the promise of the forgiveness of sins. If you've been baptized in your past and it has not been for that promise, then it may very well be that you need to reconsider what you've done and be baptized by faith in God's promise tonight, or this morning, rather. If there's anything we can do for you, if there's any way that we can help you in the Lord in your relationship with God, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.